This is the Leaders Who Learn podcast produced by Claremont Lincoln University with your hosts, Dr. Lynn Pretty and Dr. Joanna Bauer. On this episode, we welcome Angela Barranco, Undersecretary at the California Natural Resources Agency. The mission of the California Natural Resources Agency is to restore, protect, and manage the state's natural, historical, and cultural resources for current and future generations. We're so lucky to have somebody with Angela's background in nonprofit management, governmental relations, and sustainability research on this podcast. Now, let's hear from our hosts. Welcome back to the Leaders Who Learn podcast from Claremont Lincoln University. I'm Dr. Lynn Pretty. And I'm Joanna Bauer. We're your hosts, exploring new, different, and urgently needed forms of leadership. And today's guest, I'm so excited to have you meet her. Her name is Angela Barranco, Undersecretary of California Natural Resources Agency, but previously, folks, CEO, COO of River LA, and was also in multiple roles in the Obama White House and campaign. She's been focused on climate change, environmental sustainability, strategic communication. Angela, we are going to jump right in with a first question and get you talking. So we've watched leaders, and this question is purposely broad first. We've watched leaders in crisis these past five months with COVID and with the social injustice. So what is the impact on leaders and leadership in environmental sustainability and climate change during these crises. Another way of thinking about this is you're a leader in these areas. What are you learning about leading amidst crisis? Well, let me just say that thank you so much for having me here today. I mean, what an opportunity to spend just a couple of minutes with all of you thinking about this type of question because you know, the last five months have been incredibly fast and furious and um, an absolute, um, I would say, experiment in leadership at this incredible moment. So, you know, frankly, I think, um, you know, what the last five months in terms of leadership has been is, is really this, this um, opportunity to kind of learn, grow, and, but also you know, reflect on what it takes to lead, right? And I, I, I don't want to be too broad, but I guess it was sort of a broad question, you know, it's like, how do you lead in a crisis? You know, how do you fundamentally um, retain, you know, your team and keep them moving forward, but also, um, you know, understand the landscape that you have been working off of for, and in this case, decades has changed fundamentally overnight, right? And so, you know, what I would say first and foremost is, you know, we are leaders before we are environmental leaders or climate leaders or anything like that. So the people that we work with is, is really how we do anything. And so caring about them, thinking about them um, as human beings has been really critical. And then communication on top of that and how you can be clear about what's known and what's unknown in such a really crazy time. And then, you know, what are still the priorities that you can still accomplish? So, it, what, you know, what's in the budget, what's not in the budget and all the random policy things you could come up with. And so it's, it's been such an incredible moment to be a leader, um, but also incredible to see all the different types of leadership, you know, at all levels that have been displayed by so many people, not just in our organization, but you know, across the country. 
you know, um, that you've raised several themes that have come out from the others in this podcast about discovering what leaders really need to have as leaders and what's really desired. You know, we're, we are trying so hard to figure that out as a university as well at, at Claremont Lincoln. So, so in terms of what is needed from leaders, let's take it now to your field, climate change, environmental sustainability. You can limit this to California if you want, or you can make it broad. Um, what is needed right now from leaders in environmental sustainability and climate change? Um, and what's needed from people? You know, I, I think in so many ways, you know, some basic things that, you know, apply to all, everybody. So I'll start with people, you know, I think leaders right now, it's a really important time to listen, right? It's an important time to take a step back and really understand um, everybody's human experience. So whether it's COVID and just the sheer terror of the idea of being sick and potentially exposed to something that could be so dangerous every single day, right? Like whether it's your grocery order or your trip to the, you know, to the veterinarian or whatever you do, it's sort of like people are not used to living with that level of anxiety. And, and um, that's a huge part of just being a person today. But then when you think about social injustice and generations worth of not listening, generations worth of not understanding, um, it's really a time that I wonder in, in many ways, and I don't think I'm the only one here, you know, those two things seem interlinked. It's the moment where um, a lot of the noise of life has died down because it has to. And so we actually have room and space to listen and people are really taking these things seriously. So, you know, in terms of leadership, I think that is true for everyone. In terms of climate and environment, you know, there have been in the past, you know, some tensions between, you know, various policy issues, you could say, and folks thinking that, you know, environment versus social issues or healthcare versus something. And we just don't live in that world anymore. And so, you know, when we're thinking about climate, that is a justice issue. When we think about, you know, environmental, um, you know, toxins and, and all the stuff that happens, you know, in people's water and air, that is a justice issue. The same goes for conservation, you know, who has access to open space, all of a sudden is a really big issue you know, in a way that we just never would have anticipated when we're all stuck at home. Um, and so, you know, the intersectionality between all of these things is just so clear. Um, so anyway, I could talk for hours on all of these, but yes. <laughs> it's so, so wait, to be here. So I know Joanna has a question, but I have to probe that further because you brought it up because we are also seeing these linkages between um, climate change, environmental sustainability, and the inequities or, or equity and social justice. Um, can, can you actually give a couple of examples of how you see that intersection? Absolutely. I mean, you don't have to look any further than, you know, places like Flint, Michigan, where there has been an issue of toxic water um, impacting, you know, underinvested communities for the longest time. And we're talking, just to be really frank, black and brown communities where um, a lot of the pollution burden is faced every single day. And so, you know, that is, that has, you know, it's funny, it's, that's been happening all along. And all of a sudden there is this, you know, new focus and, and rightfully so to say that that's not okay. Um, when you think about something like the COVID crisis, 
there's definitely the healthcare impact and there's a lot of discussion about that. But, you know, in our world, you know, folks love to talk a lot about access to parks, you know, but it's always a little bit theoretical. Mm -hmm. We want to make sure people go to Yosemite or that whatever, you know, it sort of feels a little bit like disconnected always. But now it's really real because the places in the communities where um, the investments for these green spaces has gone is tends to be invested communities, right? So those people have a place to go walk when, you know, their movie theaters and museums and all the usual entertainment is closed. You know, who has access to green space but folks who are already in invested communities. And so, you know, really thinking about access to the outdoors as, you know, not just a luxury, but as, you know, a public health and, um, you know, an environmental priority is a really big thing that we think about every day. Thank you, okay, I'm reluctantly, reluctantly turning it over to Joanna. <laughs> well, um, Angela, thank you so much for being here. I find your story very inspiring from many points of view, um, from uh, you were from Yonkers to the White House to Sacramento, and I'm wondering just from maybe a, you know, a female in leadership positions, what was the driving story behind your career moves? What motivated you to take this position and not that position? Mm, that's a great question. Um, you know, it's funny because I, I always think about this and I always, you know, people ask this question sometimes and I always say like, in retrospect, it looks like this really well-laid plan. <laughs> like, oh, I did this and I did that. And, oh, that gave me the perfect springboard to the next thing, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, but the honest truth is, you know, um, you know, it wasn't super planned. So one, I'll, I'll just say that. Uh, but then, but two, I think what really guided me um, was what I always I kind of emphasize to folks when they ask me, you know, for, for random career advice, how do I do the next thing? How do I go work at the White House? Whatever. And I'm like, you know, it doesn't, it's not really how it worked for me. Like it was actually all about understanding the change I wanted to create in the world. Right. And mm. sort of a very early understanding for myself that I didn't want to waste time. I don't know how that, it sounds so terrible to put it that way, but you know, that I, I just really wanted to like enjoy the work I did learn lots of stuff, be really like intellectually you know, stimulated by the work I do. And for that to have a double bottom line, like not just a great paycheck or a great way of living or lifestyle, but also to give back and to be like, for me, that was the, the cachet that I needed to, you know, adding to the equation or the, or the not cachet is the wrong word. Um, what am I looking for? The currency, that's the word. So let me, let me start over again there. <laughs> that's the, you know, that's the more important currency for my career was, was the kind of the service element to it. Because to me, it was like, you know, I can always make more money, can always have a fancier yeah. lifestyle or, or whatever. But at, ultimately at the end of the day, you kind of, what is it all good for? And for me, anyway, it kind of honed into this environmental kind of crisis moment when um, in college I was, um, so I was supposed to be, uh, I was trained as a conservation biologist. Most people don't realize that my career is just like went in a totally different direction but you know so I'm out there like counting cacti for one thing counting dolphins for another and you know I'm kind of like doing my little you know scientist kind of thing and then you know gives you a lot of time to think as you're out there doing field work 
And I think kind of this kind of what I call it like epiphany moment of just like everything in the world is connected. And I know that sounds so cliche, but I think when you really feel that and you understand that the call to service is natural, right? Like exactly. then I must be a part of the solution. And so for me, it was actually really, I mean, it was a privilege, right? To be able to say after college, I'm only going to work for things that I really love. And I, you know, don't worry, I'll eat ramen and I'll just figure it out. Right. Like, and that was always just my thing, but I want to work hard and I want to learn things and I want to, I want to lead, I want to make change, you know? And so I spent, you know, a lot of time doing those kinds of things and it just paid off. I mean, that's the way I would say it. I got really lucky. You know, I met the right people at the right moment and they happened to go to the white house also. And so like, you know, it just became this kind of like kismet, you know, it's like, I put a lot of energy and, and time into building skills that could make change. And then I just got opportunities to be able to make that change. And so, and that's a sort of positive cycle that kind of builds on itself. Now that's like kind of a more theoretical way of thinking about it. But like, I think that's really true. Like the way I pick my next job is the way I've picked my job for a long time. It's like, is it exciting? Can I do something really, you know, impactful that's going to help the environment, people, something, right? And then, you know, am I going to have fun doing it? Because that means I'm going to do my best work. So it's a combination of, of those things um, I that like how you, really driven me. I like how you said um, yeah. random courage. So yeah. to me, that's a really important point of just having that courage to say, I am not going to take a job unless it means something. And that, and you talked earlier about the intersectionality of how all these things lead to each other. And that's what we teach also with our, uh, at CLU is with the social change. I have one more question, Lynn, if you'll let me. Absolutely. <laughs> so I'm to listening. Follow, to follow up on that, um, obviously you've made very intentional choices that ended up to be in the direction that you want it to be. But I'm wondering, uh, since you're in a predominantly male <laughs> arena there mm -hmm. and, and also with sustainability as well. So what do you think are the, the unique challenges faced by women in leadership positions? And particularly, do you see a place for female leaders in sustainability? Have you been embraced? Do you have some barriers there? What do you think? Oh, well, first and foremost, absolutely. There's a huge place for women in sustainability, period. And I think um, there is, I think, that confidence and that notion that women leaders in sustainability have to come to the table with. So I will just say, like, all my women leaders in sustainability, you belong there. Mm -hmm. And now it's our job also to open the door for you know, other women leaders to join us. Um, I would say it is very male dominated. Um, campaigns, which I spent a lot of my career doing is as well. I mean, there was definitely a moment um, early in my career where I kind of ducked my head up out of, you know, the very various projects I was working on and realized, you know, as one of, I could only count one, uh, Latina mm. campaign managers at a certain level, right? And that is still true, right? Like, if you look at campaign leadership, the same to do with sustainability leadership. But I think things are changing to some degree. I think part of it is, you know, we have to claim our space, right? Like this is our space too. And I can say it's always been easy. You know, I've had people say things like I don't have enough presence. You know, mm -hmm. I'm only five, three and a half, right? Mm -hmm. So in a room, like Yay. I physically don't hold the mm -hmm. space. <laughs> mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that I don't have ideas or I can't put a point down forcefully or I can't lead, but you, you are also, you know, 
dealing with those sorts of things. And so, um, and which I have too. So I think there's culture change we have to force. We have to bring more people. That, that's why it's so important for, you know, women leaders to be on boards, to be, you know, in the C-suite, to be the CEO, mm-hmm. all those kinds of things, because um, that's the only way things will event, you know, eventually actually change. But I do think the nature of environment and sustainability is, yeah, you know, traditionally it has been, especially the sciences in general tend to be very male dominated, but it's changed a lot. You know, even just if you look at like the graduating classes of colleges, a lot of these sciences are now at least 50% women, which is pretty exciting. Now there's huge gaps when it comes to master's degrees, PhDs, we have a lot of work to do. The fact that we're, we're starting to kind of um, do that is huge. And, and I will say, I'm, and this is a funny thing to kind of reference, but I um, definitely started from a different point. I think that most people, my mom was one of three women to graduate um, in pharmacy from her university. So if you look at her um, graduation photo, it is literally a sea of men in black mm. suits and three little women in the front row <laughs> in white gowns. And um, so she's a um, pharmaceutical chemist um, for her entire career. She's retired now. Um, and so, you know, I did have the privilege of growing up and being like, of course, women are scientists. Like, there is no question about that. Like, you know, and, and Latina women are scientists, mm-hmm. right? And so... I didn't, you know, I personally did not have to overcome that barrier. I would say in some ways, my mom was more disappointed that I became a biologist instead of like a chemist or a physicist. Uh-huh. <laughs> like that, was, that was a big challenge, you know, um, but, or an environmental scientist too, you know, she was like, what is that? Um, but, you know, so anyway, at the end of the day, long story short to your question, I think it's changing, but we have a lot more work to do. All right, so I'm going to push you even further on that, though I have another question. But I'm pushing you there. So at, at Claremont, we're a graduate school, right? We have a master's in sustainability. We have an incredible group of black, brown, and white women. And they constantly ask us, yes, but I don't know what we could do with a sustainability master's. I mean, I have a bachelor's, but it's not mm-hmm. in. What, what, what do I do? Where, where do I get a job? Because everyone is focused on career. What can we tell these women? We want to show them pathways. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Well, for me, at least, I mean, there are some phenomenal women in sustainability, um, two of whom I've, I've, I worked with at the White House, who are the chief sustainability officer of the United States. Um, so one, I would say, is like, there is a chief sustainability officer of the United States, people. That's a huge, awesome job, right? Um, <laughs> yeah. <and> then, <laughs> but two, you know, both in the corporate world and throughout um, both state, local, and federal government, sustainability has now become a, a, a integrated practice, right? So one of the folks that I worked with now does sustainability at Google, right? Enormous job, <laughs> right? Another oh. person works in triple bottom line venture capital. Enormous mm-hmm. job, you know, like, mm-hmm. so, you know, depending on what you want to do and which, where you want to go, sustainability as a background and as a, as a practice, I and mean, then especially as a graduate degree, can immediately credential you into these kinds of opportunities. When I was working in LA with LA River stuff, you know, we worked very closely with the city's Office of Sustainability. And so, you know, there too, there was a whole suite of people who were thinking about the intersection between water and energy and climate and all that work and thinking of really progressive policies, 
you know, for a city that was really looking to lean in. There's other places that make it a little more conservative is what I would say, you know, they're talking about recycling or energy efficiency, but you know, a ton of opportunity from a policy standpoint and also from a technical standpoint. So what I would say, it's a really emerging field for, you know, like I said, the fanciest job that I could think of, which is Chief Sustainability Officer of the United States, all the way to, you know, your local city government looking for someone to help lead them in, you know, any number of ways uh, around sustainability issues. Because it's frankly good for their bottom line, right? And that's also one of the truths of this. It's like, it's a business practice that's really benefits everyone, right? Like you can help the environment and reduce all of the costs. So thank you for th thank you for that. We may send some students your way because they ask us this oh, constantly. Absolutely, so, um, absolutely. absolutely. So I, I want to ask you something that has been in a lot of chatter in groups I bump into, and it's been about the impact on the climate and sustainability of COVID and and the things that have kept us home. And there's been supposedly noticeable positives as a result of that. But at the same time, and I'm gonna bring my grocery bag story in here, no one's interested mm -hmm. in me bringing my own bags anymore. And we seem to have disposable masks everywhere and disposable, we seem to be have gone both forward and backward in climate change as a result of current crises. Can you? Can you kind of enlighten us on what's real, if at least in California? It's a really tough question because you're right. I mean, when you think about the millions and millions, I mean, tens of hundreds of millions of uh, personal protective equipment that's been mm. used with good reason, right? Like it had to be done, like whether it's gloves or masks, or gowns or shields or whatever's being used, all of it's disposable right now. And so, you know, I think it's just, it's one of these trade-offs um, that is just heartbreaking, but you can't, you know, kind of jeopardize these frontline workers who are doing this incredible work to keep people alive, right? Um, what I would say is, you know, once this, you know, at least the front end of the crisis abates, you know, and this really turns into a long-term crisis, which is what we're seeing every day, right? This isn't going away tomorrow. Mm -hmm. It's going away with months and years to come. So, maybe this is a moment where we can take a step back and say, Hey guys, like maybe it's not about your grocery bags, but can we find a way to recycle those bags or create bags that are, um, you know, can be uh, put into compost or, you know, like let's, let's, let's sort of incorporate the new reality into um, the work that's being done. I know that um, some folks were looking at kind of reusable masking that is still at a very high standard and being able to disinfect that masking, you know, after multiple uses and things like that, where, you know, you never want to take the chance that you're, you know, kind of gambling with a bunch of people's lives, but at the same time, you know, could we do this better probably? And um, there's probably a lot of entrepreneurship that could kind of jump into that void, but I, I just think we're going, we're, we're reckoning with this becoming a long-term problem. And that's one of the big challenges, I mean, I don't think anyone has a great solution to it now either. No, clearly that's, um, you know, that's what we've been talking about as well. How do we, the competing um, priorities of the different crises, um, and you already spoke to how climate change impacts uh, those who can least afford to it, um, for it to impact as well in terms of, of equity. Um, can you speak to, 
if we if we think about the back to your idea of parks and open spaces, can you talk some more about things that you are seeing emerging in the public sector? Any solutions, any ideas you're seeing emerging that really um, both address public health as well as climate change and sustainability? And it can be particular to California or more broad, if you'd like. Gosh, well, I think I think this open space question is a huge part of that um, because you know there's the kind of the question of you raise about the disposable stuff, and I think that's a tough one um, that I'm sure people are thinking about. But the one we really think a lot about is this open space question and um, these multi-benefit projects, and um, you know, I with the work that I've done with the LA River, um, to me, that's a wonderful example of exactly that. So it's, um, you know, just the quickest for folks who are not familiar with the LA River, which some people aren't, um, even in LA, um, you know, it's, it's basically, um, you know, this incredible concrete infrastructure that over the course of, you know, 51 miles takes water that is, you know, rained on into the basin basin of LA and out as quickly as possible to save, um, you know, people and property across the region, right? Basically, most of LA would not exist if you didn't have the LA River concretized being able to take that water as quickly as possible out to the ocean. Because basically it would flood everything. And, and historically, there was huge damage caused by these sort of seasonal flooding. That being said, it's 51 miles of concrete in a corridor that goes through some of the most park poor areas in the uh -huh. entire country. Really, the, the, definitely in the county. Um, and so what, you know, we think about a lot, at least at natural resources, is how you take something like that, that infrastructure that exists for a really important reason, you know, life and health and safety, but convert it into something that can serve multiple benefits. Could you capture water? Um, you know, could you reduce our imports of water from other places that are heavily carbon intensive? So it takes, you know, one of the largest um, uses of, of carbon intensive energy in the state is actually pumping water. People don't realize that. Um, it's, it's actually just bringing water to Southern California is extremely climate intensive. So if we could reduce the amount of water we're bringing from other places, that would have a, you know, multiple benefits, right? Another huge one is absence of open space and, and um, parks, you know, could you then, as part of the redevelopment of the infrastructure, think about adding trees to be able to reduce heat island effect, um, put open space in both for recreation, but also just, you know, um, again, to increase greenery, um, it would be helpful for, you know, migrating plants and animals so that they have a corridor to be able to go through. There's all of these like multiple benefits you could see in one space in one of the most dense urban areas, right, in this country. And, and so I think there's just so much excitement around that. And if you look at, you know, there's a couple of places along the LA River that literally you, if you live in this community, you have incredibly high rates of asthma, you mm. have zero access to park space, meaning like you have to go miles to be able to get to a park. And you have incredibly dense communities, so you have huge impacts in terms of climate change and heat, right? And so could you, with LA River, you know, just see it as like an opportunity to bring all these benefits communities that would have no other opportunity, right? And so, um, you know, I think that's really exciting. And so using the LA River is a wonderful example of that. There's examples of that everywhere in California. 
right, ways that we can take and convert or think about the future work that we're doing in, for, towards these multiple benefits um, that will both help with climate, help with access and justice issues, but also, um, you know, maybe even be more efficient uh, for our budgets and for all the work that we do. Okay, so now I'm going to get you to think about the future. You're a brand new mom, and we yeah. think about our children, and we think about what you just talked about, and what do you think are the most important things leaders have to do for our children? You know, I, I am new to the mom thing, so I could use some expert advice from other folks on, <laughs> on what exactly <laughs> that know. means in the long term. Yeah. But um, at least for me, I did speak to for sure. Um, I think first and foremost is, is teaching you know, our children those leadership skills of listening and empathizing and being present to the moment that is in front of you, right? So how to respond to crisis is, you know, is both simple and incredibly difficult, right? But if you teach kids those skills and you teach them to hear others and where they're coming from, then maybe we'll be able to think through these problems a little bit faster instead of like all of us took us forever to get to this point <laughs> where we all are listening on racial injustice. It's like, we should have been all listening a long time ago, but we're here now, so let's do it, right? Um, but maybe this generation, we just teach them to listen from the beginning, right? And like, let's empathize with um, all of these things and so that we can move forward um, and not waste any more time. And so I would say, you know, one, just those basic skills. But when it comes to the environment, I think it's also the teaching of that interconnectedness that, you know, not good enough to say you know this is mine and and I'm going to just fight for my little postage stamp that's how you know my little postage stamp is actually connected to yours and yours is connected to somebody else's and we live in this giant network of, of people and environment all on one planet and so our you know our impacts have consequences as much as the impacts of others and so we all have to work together um, to make that better because it's, you know, it's not good enough for just a little pocket of people here to say, we're going to get it, you know, we're going to enforce it on everyone else. It's actually everybody has to work together to actually solve a problem like climate change. And so my hope is not only will they listen uh, and empathize and be better problem solvers than we ever were, but also really open to that notion of, um, you know, the, the interconnected world we live in so that they can solve this massive problem that we we failed to solve for generations so that's my hope oh, and a wonderful sounds wonderful sounds of new life and 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 mm -hmm. all the themes of leaders for those new lives so joanna do you have a a, a final question Yes, and I love how you uh, keep bringing it back to the intersectionality of all these elements. We talk, uh, we have our core at CLU, which is our mindfulness dialogue, collaboration and change. And to me, that really is that, that basis of, of that need, that listening, that learn, that reflect that you talk about early on. So to shift a little bit, but still in that realm of listening and learning and growing and reflecting that you mentioned at the beginning, our last question is uh, regarding strategic communication and obviously focusing on diverse constituents. All of that has been part of your background and, and your career focus so far, getting that word out clear, concise, informative, but also being inclusive, I imagine was a large part of that and a, and a huge challenge. So what is the secret 
<laughs> What's the secret to strategic <laughs> communication? If you gave us three tips, <laughs> how have you been able oh, wow. to engage others and, or even just one tip? What is that one yeah. thing that we need to engage others in strategic communication? Oh gosh, this is fun because I can already think of two, but I'll try to think good, of a third good, good, before, okay, okay. before I start talking. Um, <laughs> all right. Uh, so, I mean, so one thing I learned, and I'll tell you where I learned each of the pieces, but as a, as a press secretary, you know, is that you speak to the message you want to deliver <laughs> yeah. and you repeat that message over and over and over again, because honestly, people are not always paying attention. Um, and in fact, it takes, you know, person seven to 10 times receiving a message before they even hear it, things like that, mm -hmm. um, are these great statistics out in the world. And so, you know, we often think like, oh, we've repeated ourselves a couple of times and, oh, well, they must understand. And the honest truth is like, you're never actually that repetitive. <laughs> you know, people hear it different ways and, and they come to you, whatever you're saying multiple ways. So one is repetition. So I think that's really, really important. And because just one and done into any community is like a waste. You just done nothing. And so it's about sustained engagement over, you know, long periods of time so that you can have a continued dialogue with them as well. Right. I'd say the second thing is, is, um, you know, meet your, meet who you're trying to speak with where they are at. Right. And this is an interesting thing that was both from my campaign manager side, but also from when I was at HUD and um, in the administration, you know, you think about the person you're trying to communicate with at every intersection, every point of their life in a day that you can have a conversation with them. So as a campaign manager, no super secret here, but you know, I would think about like, I want that person to wake up in the morning and pick up their phone and see an ad for my candidate. Mm. And then I want them to read the news and I wanted them to see it article that my press secretary put in there. And then I want them to go to the office and there to be like a water cooler conversation about the event that somebody is going to. And then I want them to receive a phone call from their friend in the afternoon saying, come to, you know, to an event with me. And then I want them to receive that piece of mail when they arrive home. And then I want them to turn on the local news and watch a TV ad, you know, and like you actually just walk yourself through somebody else's reality, frankly, mm. and try to figure out all the ways that you can intersect with them. Um, and that's like, super campaign strategy because you know you have money and time and all these things you're kind of playing with from the you know kind of administration side it was also understanding and acknowledging the the kind of disconnected reality that people had so at HUD there was this incredible um chart or conversation that we have where you know a person who lives in um public housing intersects with I don't know how many agencies on any given day mm -hmm. you know so you wake up and you're you're dealing with um, you know um, HUD, and then you go to school and you're dealing with the Department of Education, and then you get your lunch from USDA, and then you know you have some issue um, with you know whatever, and it's EPA, and it's like actually this is one person's unified life, and we're forcing them to intersect with totally different systems all day long. It's our job to make that unified, make that, you know, mm. one kind of conversation in one voice. And so know and try to be aware of those places where there is conflicting information that you may even be giving and, and communicating. Um, and then the third thing, you know, I would just, it's sort of obvious, but I always have to be the person to say this in a room. So to be honest here, <laughs> it's like, you know, also don't um, patronize or patronize mm -hmm. or 
patronize. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't talk down okay. to your, your folks, right? Definitely don't talk down to your, you know, who you're talking to, but I, I think it happens in very subtle ways. You know, people will oh, say to me like, yeah. well, I'm communicating with the Latino community. I bought Spanish ads mm. and I want to be like, how many Latinos <laughs> do you know that actually don't even speak Spanish? And, well, right. first, how many Latinos do you know? But two, <laughs> like right. some of them, you know, uh, I, I, you know, I like I speak Spanish, but I receive all my communication in terms of news and entertainment in English. Right. And so you've totally lost me. And that's to me just sort of like, um, yeah. Um, there's a, you know, there's kind of a, 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 just a lack of understanding there that often happens with communication tools that I just think um, we need to get better at, we need to grow up and mm. figure out. <laughs> so, and you said earlier, listen. So, listen, that's the biggest thing, right? Listen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Listen, understand others. Um, Thank you so much, Angela Branco. And your new little one. <laughs> and, and at bottom up, wait a minute, Joanna, because we heard our new little one's voice, we need yeah. to appropriately attribute that voice. Your baby's name, first name only. Um, it's Michaela. Michaela. So it's Fabulous. like, it's so what I say, it's Michaela. Yeah, Michaela's good. A future <laughs> female <you>. leader. Absolutely. <laughs> who listens, who learns, and who actually brings people together collaboratively, engages them for positive change. We love it. Thank you so very much, Angela. Thank you so much for being with us today. Oh my goodness, Joe. Oh, look at this. We can't even talk. We just have to talk (laughs) over each other. It was so fun. So So talk, talk, Joanna. What did you like? Well, I'm just starting out saying uh, experiment in leadership is where we are now. I think because it's so true with the crisis situation and then having to really think through equity, inclusion and diversity and all of that elements. And I love how she said, now is experiment in leadership. We need to learn, grow and reflect that to me, that and the intersectionality of everything was the key takeaways. What were yours? Oh, so and and so I was just going to build on the intersectionality because you're right. She gets it right. Mm. She could see that it's surprise leadership as well as experimental leadership. And and, you know, we we literally have been watching, um, you know, leaders trying to learn leadership and it's kind of like learning how to play the violin in public somebody said that you know it screeches at times and she was so gracious and so genuine and so real about how interconnected climate change um equity injustice the access you know i think we forget people are living in these tiny apartments Mm -hmm. rental homes with multiple family members and others are living in big houses with acreage and they can go out to any park anywhere mm-hmm. just across yeah. the street and she brings home to roost the bigger equity issues that climate change um affects i so that really resonated with me that she saw all of those connections and then on top of that she saw what's most important in leaders what did you think she said about leadership well, I love the the presence. So for me, because you know we talk so much about the core and, and our um, four core pieces, but the presence in the moment, and then the two other pieces were random courage, having random courage, and yep. claim your space. I think the number one thing we can tell 
um, people who might not feel that they have a space is to just claim it. Claim your space, speak your voice. You know, and I kept coming back to, and this, so it makes me really proud of, um, you know, our focus on mindfulness. Mm-hmm. She is clearly very, very mindful of her people. And I mean, the people who work for her, the people with whom she works, the agencies, the, the customers, the politicians, the every, you know, you can imagine in a state, she's, she uses, or she appears to use mindfulness every single day. And mm-hmm. I think that that's, that was really striking, striking to me. And she used it with, I mean, the baby, we've got to talk about her baby. I know, <laughs> I'm so sweet. <laughs> I mean, the sounds of, who wouldn't want the sounds of new life and all the possibilities that come with that amidst COVID, climate change, social injustice. I mean, I just, I found her enchanting, engaging, honest, real, transparent. What else can we say? Yeah, I mean, a, a true leader who is, is trying to learn and is trying to be engaged in that space. And as a new mom, can you imagine just thinking about the future possibilities and working towards those for social change? Amazing. Yep, I think as a future podcast, we have to do one focused on leading for our children. Yes. Because that's absolutely. pure learning, guys. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> Still absolutely. is, no matter how old. <laughs> so anyway, fabulous doing this one with you, Joanna, again. Absolutely. And I'll talk to you later. We'll see you see next, you next time. time. You've been listening to the Leaders Who Learn podcast, produced by Claremont Lincoln University. We really appreciate your support. Please feel free to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. Please check out www.claremontlincoln.edu for more information about Claremont Lincoln University and our graduate degree programs. Until next time.